do me a favor and track down a Bible if you can and get with me to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, we're looking at the life of Abram. He'll later be called Abraham, and I'll probably mix those names up throughout our time together today. Uh, But we're looking at his life, and we're considering how to live faithful to God in troubling times. And so Genesis chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 10, and then uh, on there, all the way into chapter 13, verse 1. So I'll read it, we'll pray, and then we'll get to work. Genesis 12, starting in verse 10, reads like this, Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now as we've opened your word together that you would please speak to us. We want to hear your voice by your spirit through your word. And we pray, God, that what we find here would be helpful for each and every one of us. Lord, we're grateful that you're able to use individuals like Abram and like me and like my friends here today and like those watching online. You're able to use inconsistent people and flawed people. And for that, we're very grateful and also very excited. Lord, we commit this time to you and we pray that you would let it be helpful for each and every one of us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God is able to use flawed people. I'm not sure you're aware of that, but this is an example. It's a prime example of God's ability to take somebody, and in the midst of their inconsistencies, God is able to be faithful even through all of that. So let's look at this under three different headings. We find here this, this issue of suffering on the front end. We find this instance of fear in the middle there, and we find God's divine intervention. So suffering really is the surprise feature here of this narrative. Remember, Abram is the individual that God spoke the promised plan of God to. He said, Abram, you're my guy, and I'm going to bless you, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. This actually is the good news of the gospel. Later on in the Bible, in Galatians 3.8, it says, God announced the gospel to Abraham in advance, saying, all nations of the earth will be blessed through you. So he gets this incredible promise, and he says, I'm going to set my affection on you. You're going to be the instrument of my good news to the nations. And Abraham hears that 
invitation and he responds with faith and he sets out to the place that God is going to take him. And when he arrives there, it's the promised land. And God says, look at all of this. I'm gifting this to you and your descendants uh, as an inheritance. He's in the promised land now. Verse right before where we started, he's in the promised land. He's looking over it. But then lo and behold, the promised land is in a season of severe famine. It's an, it's an instance of suffering because he's there now in this land that's supposed to be filled with milk and honey, and then the condition actually is such that he's not sure where the food is going to come from, and so he leaves. Look at verse 10. Now, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. So he is in the promised land, but the promised land is not producing for him. So he heads down to Egypt because Egypt is an area that's uh, well-nourished by the Nile River. So here's the thing that we notice then. Joyce Baldwin puts it like this. Abraham was discovering that to be in the place of God's appointment is not to be exempt from suffering. To hear the voice of God, to respond to that voice of God with faith, to find yourself in the exact place where God wants you to be does not mean that you just skate through life worry-free. You you are not exempt from suffering. It's the surprise feature that God is saying, I'm setting my affection on you, I'm giving you my blessing, and then he gets there, and the experience is marked by suffering. A few years ago, actually, probably back in 2015, I was doing an assignment for my master's program, and it was a semester-long experiment where you do uh, personality profiles and spiritual gifts assessments, and you kind of look at your passions and your experiences and your gift mix and all these different things, and then you write out a spiritual narrative. And the point of the uh, assignment is to really help individuals find out where God is calling them to and how to best utilize their gift mix. And so I went through that experience, and I wrote out my spiritual narrative, and I put all these different things together, my gift mix, my passions, my experiences, and all these different things, and you kind of trace it out so you can find out, okay, where should I be serving, and what should it look like? And lo and behold, I did that assignment, and clear as day, it, it just, you, you read through it, and you go, here's exactly what CORE should be doing, starting a campus of the church. So for me, that was a no-brainer. That was one of the easiest decisions I've ever made in my life. You look at, you trace God's hand of providence, you look at all the details, and you say, this is obviously what God is up to. Now, I made that decision, and we started the campus. Now, think with me for a minute. Did that mean that everything from that point forward was the easiest thing I was ever going to go through? No, absolutely not. In many ways, the launch of the campus is the hardest thing that I've ever done in my life. Full of some of the biggest disappointments and frustrations, full of some of the most traumatic things I've ever been through. And so I'm I'm reminding you or I'm telling you that to follow God does not exempt you from suffering. To find yourself in the perfect place of appointment that God has for you does not mean that everything is going to go easy and well for you. In fact, suffering is the surprise feature here Because you recognize Abram is this individual of faith, and he's stepping into the promised land, and then he's quickly leaving it because that promised land is not producing for him. And so we might honestly say to God, what's the problem here? Because you find yourself right now 
looking at the circumstances of life that you're going through with all of the pain and the turmoil that you might be facing right now, and you might be thinking, God, what on earth is happening? Why does it feel like this? Why does it look like this? And I'm here today to remind you that suffering is a feature of life in a fallen world. And all of us go through it in some measure that God is not absent in it, but he's actually using it for our good. Suffering has a, redemptive, has a redemptive feature about it. It's a tool in the hands of a good God. And so part of the reason why Abram probably had to go through these experiences is because he's not ready yet. God is growing him. I've, I've yet to meet an individual who makes a decision to follow God, and on day one, they are a fully formed follower of God. In actuality, there's usually a lifelong process of, of people growing and struggling and striving and learning new things about God and committing themselves repeatedly to God and his ways. And many people will note, if you study spiritual formation, one of the key elements of spiritual formation, one of the key instruments that God will use to help develop people is suffering. And so Abram goes into the promised land and quickly leaves it. And I'm just trying to remind you that suffering is something that we all experience and God can use for our good. Look at Psalm 119, verse 67. It's, it reads like this. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. When things were easy, it was easy for me to neglect God. When, when it was trouble-free, it was easy to just do things my own way. But having experienced something of suffering, the psalmist says, now, having gone through that, now I keep your word. God will use suffering in our lives for our good. He's not capricious. He's not mean. He's not saying, I'm, I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to do awful things to you. But he is able to use the pain and the disappointment and the suffering in a way that is redemptive. Look at Hebrews 5. Even the Lord himself suffered. Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9, although he was the son, talking of Jesus Christ, although he was the son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So even the Lord himself learned something of obedience through suffering. Now, it's not that he didn't know, but now he knew it experientially because he went through the sorts of things that we go through. So suffering is a part of life in a fallen world. And if you don't have that as a live category, you are disadvantaged. And I'll just say it, I'll say it again. I believe that it is very important that Christians have a theology of suffering. I think that if you have a theology of suffering, it, it better situates you to, to navigate life because life will be full of frustrations and disappointment and pain. And if you don't believe that, then, then you are going to be blindsided by it. But but believers are people who understand that suffering is a part of the experience. Well, unfortunately, Abram doesn't respond to that well. In fact, he exhibits fear. And that's the second thing we're going to find here is this reality of fear. Now, Abram is a, is a great dude. You, you look at him in the Bible, he's repeatedly brought up. He's the father of our faith. He's a example of a person of faith. He's somebody worthy of our imitation of his faith, but he is flawed. As great as he is, he is flawed, and the Bible doesn't hide that from us. In fact, in some ways, I believe the, the Bible really kind of puts that on the front end so we understand it better. 
The Bible is telling us something about Abram. There are a couple different kinds of biographies out there. One is the kind where the biographer writes about their subject and they're so enamored by them that all they can say is positive things. And, and sometimes that's good. Uh, there are biographies that I've read, like uh, one on Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, and on, only good things come out of that biography. And it's you know, challenging because he's the Prince of Preachers and it makes ordinary preachers like me just feel inadequate. But there are times where reading something like that is very appropriate. But then there are other kinds of biographies that actually show the inconsistencies of the subject. I remember a biography on A.W. Tozer. He was a pastor in the Chicagoland area, a very uh, well-known pastor at this point. He, he was pastoring during maybe the 40s, 50s, and early 60s. And he wrote some significant and classic works like The Knowledge of the Holy and The Pursuit of God, things that are still in print today. But in his biography, the, the biographer was, was okay with showing that this dude wasn't the greatest on every front. In fact, he wasn't the best husband or dad. And um, the bi biographer was kind of bringing that out. And, I, and at first, I was kind of offended by that. Like, why are, you, why are you tarnishing the reputation of this deceased man and this great servant of God? And I read this line, and it really shook me. So... Aiden is his name, and his wife's name was Ada, which is very cute, right? Aiden and Ada, it's adorable. Uh, Old-time names that are prob probably at a preschool now. There's like a million Aidens and Adas uh, as we rehash those old names. But um, eventually, Aiden passed away, and his wife lived on and remarried. And she, this is in the biography, she said this. She said, this is, she remarries a guy named Leonard Odin, and she, she said this. This is a quotation of her own words. This is the happiest I've ever been in my life. Aiden loved Jesus Christ, but Leonard Odin loves me. And I remember feeling like, huh, I, I don't like that. And I wish it wouldn't have been in there. But the truth is, to omit that part of his life actually loses a part of his humanity. See, the Bible is that second kind of biography. It doesn't just put people out there as heroes and champions of the faith when it tells a story about an individual. It actually shows their flaws. And I think that it does it very intentionally so that it helps us to recognize these people are cut from the same cloth as us. They have inconsistencies like I have inconsistencies. They have flaws like I have flaws. And that means then that it is possible if God can use somebody like him Maybe he could use somebody like me. So let's look at this. We find here in our episode that Abram is full of fear. In the first case, he's full of fear that he's unable to provide for himself. He's in a situation of famine, and so what does he do? He abandons the promised land. God just said to him, Right in the previous couple of verses, I'm giving you this land as the inheritance for your descendants. And just as soon as he's there, he leaves. He's fearful. How am I going to provide? How am I going to find food and sustenance for me and my family? And so he quickly moves from that land. Furthermore, he fears for his life. Look at verses 11 and 12. He has fear of man here. When he was about to enter Egypt... He said to his wife, Sarai, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, 
And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Fear of man. He's looking at what he knows to be true of the Egyptians, and he's saying, look, if we just go in there and people see how beautiful you are, my life means nothing to them, and they could do great harm to me. They could kill me. It's fear of man. Now, I've struggled with this my entire life, but fear of man is where we're looking at the circumstances and we're, we're thinking worst-case scenario. Like, like, if we keep going in this direction, people are going to do harm. And I believe that the fear that Abram has here is probably shared by many of us here online and in this room. There's this fear of the unknown, fear for safety, fear for our own lives, and we begin to be dominated by that fear instead of trusting in God and God's own faithfulness. And in light of that fear, Abram was willing to manipulate and deceive for his own safety. Look at verse 13. Say, he's talking to Sarai, say, you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now, he's telling his wife, when we go in there, Let's pretend not to be husband and wife. Let's pretend to be relatives. You're my sister. And then it'll go well for me on your, on, for your sake. Okay, so here, here's what's going on, though. Technically, this is partly accurate. Sarai is the half-sister of Abram. And in their culture, that was an appropriate thing to do, to marry the half-sister. So technically, this is accurate. Sarai was, in fact, his half-sister, But what Abram is doing here is an expression of his fear and unbelief. So Bruce Waltke puts it like this. Abram is willing to risk his honor and his wife's purity to advantage himself on this technicality. He is looking at the situation, operating out of a heart full of fearfulness, and he is now taking matters into his own hands, and he is lying and deceiving to try to save his own skin. That's the power that fear can have on us. We can look at the moment and we can say, we don't really know how this is going to play out, but we're concerned about it. And so we better start doing something here. I better start doing something for my own sake. I better start looking after my own. I better take matters into my own hands. And you know what? I'll I'll fudge a little bit here and there to try to make it favorable for me. But, you know, that's not a big deal because I need to do what's best for me and my family. So fear is what's going on here with Abram. He is fearful for his life, and that fear is actually realized. Look at verses 14 and 15. It says, When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very, very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Now, here's what I want to say. It means that his fear wasn't just crazy. It wasn't unfounded. There was something about the Egyptians that he perceived to be true about them that he imagined would come true when they got there, and sure enough, it unfolds in the way that he anticipates. They see Sarai, they praise her, and they bring her to Pharaoh. Now, here's the point that I want to make for us. A lot of us right now are looking at the cultural moment that we're going through, and we're fearful for different reasons, depending on the concerns of your heart. But many of us are fearful, and a lot of those fears are not unfounded. There's a reason why you feel that way. There's a reason why you're concerned about how things are going. And so in that fear, 
you might be motivated in this moment to say, here's the actions that I need to take to make sure that I can put aside this fear, to do, to do the best that I can to try to manage this moment. Your assessment of the cultural moment might be pretty accurate, but I want to encourage you, do not operate out of unbelief in God's goodness. In this moment, you might be fearful of where things are headed as a society for a variety of different reasons, and you might be thinking, I need to do something here because this is troubling, and I'm going to do this and this and this. Friends, be careful that you don't start to act out of your unbelief in God and your confidence in yourself. We need to be careful here because that's exactly what Abram is doing. He is fearful, he is unbelieving, and it shows. So God then has to step in. The third thing I want to show you here is divine intervention. In light of Abraham's inconsistencies, God is proving himself to be faithful. First off, God is stepping in and he's doing some, some things and, and it shows up really in plundering the Egyptians, protecting Abraham and his family and then providing for them. So he, he plunders the Egyptians. This is kind of crazy, but look at verse 16. It says, and for her sake, Pharaoh dealt, with, dealt well with Abram and Abram acquired sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. In, in view of the beauty of Sarai and the bride price, if you will, Abram actually ends up with a lot of stuff. God plunders the Egyptians, and this actually becomes a, a recurring theme. In fact, it, Abram will do the exact same thing again later on in chapter 20. And then his son will do the exact same thing later on. And then if, if you're familiar with the story, the Israelites end up in slavery and they plunder the Egyptians. But there's this recurring theme of God plundering the enemies on behalf of the people of God. So Abram was dealt well with and given all of these different gifts. So even though Abram was acting in unbelief, God was providing for him. This is a wild truth. God is gifting blessings and provisions to Abram and his family. You see, God is making Abram into a great nation, and right here, what God is doing is he's resourcing that nation. Camels, donkeys, servants, all this stuff. And here's the incredible reality of the gospel. God is able to bless us even when we are unfaithful. Now, there are consequences to our unbelief. I'll show them to you in a moment, but God is able to plunder the enemies even when we are acting in unbelief. God also protects, look at verses 17 to 19, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Here's what's going on. God is stepping in with the plagues and with the affliction of Pharaoh and his household. God is stepping in and he's making this point incredibly clear. This man and his wife are mine. They belong to me. And God is pr protecting them then in this instance. And God is caring for them and he's doing what's best for them even if they're not doing what's best for themselves. So the point is being made. God is protecting his people. Now Abraham, on the other hand, He's being rebuked. And here's what's fascinating about it. 
the rebuke is coming from a pagan king. The king is correcting him. Why did you do this? Why did you say she was your sister so that I, so that I took her to be my wife? That's not okay. Abraham acted in unbelief, and his correction now was coming from an unbeliever. It's ironic, but God will do that to us. In a moment like right now, I, I think that the church is actually being shamed in some ways. When unbelieving society has a more tender conscience than us, that's unfortunate. When an unbelieving society looks at us and says, why are you doing that? You should know better. When the unbelieving society has better ethics than we do, more concern for people than we have, that is a strong rebuke. But that's what happens when we live in fear and unbelief and only looking after our own self-interest. God will correct us even at the hand of an unbelieving society. We see, too, the provision of God, the, the divine intervention in verses 19 and 20. He says, now then, this is Pharaoh speaking, here's your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Take her and go. Be on your way. Take everything I've given you, the bride price that you've received. Take your people and just get gone because we don't want anything to do with you anymore. God obviously cares for you, is looking after you, is providing for you. So I am saying you are released. And Abram then returns. Look at verse 1 of chapter 13. This is an inclusio. This is where if you're telling a story, you start in one way, you end in the same way, but let's look at it. In um, verse 10, he goes down to Egypt in verse 1 of 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him in, into the Negev. So he goes up now and it's this kind of, the story's over. We, we had an episode here and here's what we learned. God is able to provide for his people. God is able to look after his people and God is able to use flawed individuals like Abram. That's the point. That Abram is not, he is a great man of faith. He does become an example of that faith. Later on, he's willing to even sacrifice his own son for the ways of God. There are many things about him that we should imitate and seek to be more like. But, but we also note that Abram is a flawed individual. He, too, is a sinner like you and I. And God has the ability to not only bless him, but to also use him. So here are a couple different thoughts for us as we consider how this applies to us. So the first thing I want to say is, let's learn to be patient with people, right? If you're looking at somebody and you're noticing their inconsistencies and you're wishing that they were further along than maybe they are, be patient with them. Because God was patient with Abram and he's patient with you. And he's patient with me. So when you see inconsistencies in people, remind yourself that God uses only flawed people and they are a work in progress. So be patient with them. The second thing I want to say, though, is be confident that God can use you. If you're looking at the storyline and you're noticing the flaws of Abram, it helps us to recognize that God, if God could use him, maybe he can use me. God can use even you. The Apostle Paul later on, he'll put it like this. He just kind of made it a, a very profound reality here in 2 Timothy 2.13. He says, if we're faithless, God remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. 
even if we feel ourselves to be fickle and fearful and lacking in the confidence of God, God is faithful, so maybe he could use me. Maybe he could use you. Now, uh, there's a guy that has really benefited me, a pastor that I've learned a lot from, and I've shared a lot of his stuff with you. In fact, some of you, I've introduced uh, his little green book to you guys. It's a book on gospel culture. It's a book on how the gospel ought to influence the way that we do church. Uh, his name's Ray Ortland, and he launched a, a church in Nashville, Tennessee, called Emmanuel Nashville. And they have a, a, what they call the Emmanuel Mantra, some sayings of theirs. And I'm going to share them with you because I think it's really helpful for us. And I will say this because we do have a lot of kids in here. There's a word in here that we, we don't actually want you to use. And moms and dads, you'll hear it and you'll explain it later. And that's fine by me because I'd rather explain this concept than create a lot of little um, monster moralists, okay? So let's <laughs> deal with it. But this is the Emmanuel mantra, three different things. We'll say them, then, then I'll try to explain them. It goes like this. I'm a complete idiot. My future is incredibly bright, and anyone can get in on this. Those are the three things. I'm a complete idiot. That's just acknowledging, and kids, that's the word we don't want you using, and talk to your parents about it. We don't want you going around using that term inappropriately, but the truth about Christianity is we acknowledge our inconsistencies, and we look at ourselves, and we say, yeah, if it's on me and my giftedness and my consistency and my faithfulness, we're in trouble. I make mistakes. I'm flawed. I'm a complete idiot. But my future is incredibly bright. I'm not sitting around discouraged by that reality. The good news of the gospel is that God is able to deal with people like me. And he doesn't just do it because he you know, is reluctant, is like, oh, come on, Corey, you're doing this again. No, 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 he delights to help. And so my future is incredibly bright. God is able to redeem me. There's a day coming where I will be free from my sinfulness and my inconsistencies, and I will be with him for all of eternity. My, my future is bright. Yes, I'm a complete idiot, but also I have the hope of glory. And finally, anyone can get in on this. If that's true, if that's the message of the gospel, then it's an open invitation for anybody, that anybody could get in on it. I love how Ray, he, he will often say this. He'll often say, if it's not beneath you. Anyone can get in on this if it's not beneath you. If you're willing to entrust yourself to a good and gracious God, if you're willing to acknowledge your need for him, if you're willing to entrust yourself to him as, as savior, Anyone can get in on this. And that is the good news of the gospel. There's an invitation for us even today. God uses flawed people. So take heart. God uses flawed people. Maybe he can use you. Maybe he can use me. Let's believe that God is able to provide for us and care for us and use us for his glory. So let's pray. Bow with me if you would. Lord, we are grateful for your word. And we're grateful that it doesn't whitewash the different individuals in it. It reveals to us their flaws, their unbelief, their inconsistency. And even still, God, you 
maintain your faithfulness. You've given your promises and you see them through. And that's good news for us too because that means you could use us. If it's not beneath us to humble ourselves and entrust ourselves to you, you could use us. Let us be the kind of church filled with the kind of people who believe in your goodness. Amen.